Hello, and welcome to episode 52 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, freelance writer, criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. We'll get to my interview with Sonia Starr in just a second, but first, the news. There was a lot going on last week. We got a terrible Supreme Court decision, more or less justifying torture and death penalty cases. Justice Gorsuch seemed to think that what mattered wasn't the plan, the, the pain that was brought to someone being executed. It was the amount of pain that would have been acceptable at the time of the framing of the Constitution. Uh, he even made references to hangings and firing squads and seemed to think that that was an acceptable solution. Uh, we also got a, a groundbreaking Department of Justice report exposing the brutality, death, and sexual abuse, rampant sexual abuse, and the overcrowded and understaffed Alabama Department of Corrections. Things were apparently so bad that the Department of Justice gave Alabama 49 days to make serious changes, or they were taking the court uh, on a boat full of Eighth Amendment challenges. In other words, it hasn't been the greatest week of all time, uh, you know, a little bit depressed. But I'm hopeful, at least, that something good will come out of this Alabama report and that, uh, you know, well, I don't even know what to say about the Supreme Court right now. Uh, so I'm trying something new this week. Uh, I had, a, you know, as I said before, I'm interviewing Sonia Starr, who's a professor at the University of Michigan, a law professor at the University of Michigan. And she's done a lot of groundbreaking research on different elements of the criminal justice system. And our discussion was so uh, wide, wide ranging that I thought it would be uh, easier to break it up into some more uh bite-sized parts. I I felt like that putting it all in one interview would be, again, probably way too long and probably uh, take away some of the impact from the different things that she's covered. So I'm breaking it up into two episodes. So now let's get to uh, part one of my interview with Sonia Starr. Sonia Starr is a professor of law and the co-director of the Empirical Legal Studies Center at the University of Michigan Law School. Before coming to Michigan Law, Professor Starr taught at the University of Maryland School of Law and spent two years at the Harvard Law School as a Clemenko Fellow and lecturer on law. Professor Starr has clerked for the Honorable Merrick Garland of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and for the Shared Appeals Chamber of the International Criminal Tribunals for Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia in The Hague. Between these clerkships, she was an associate with the Goldstein and Howe uh, firm in Washington, D.C., a firm specializing in U.S. Supreme Court litigation. Professor Starr earned her J.D. from Yale Law School, where she served as senior editor of the Yale Law Journal and was awarded the American Bar Association's annual Ross Student Writing Prize. She's also the first person I've ever interviewed on this podcast that I knew well before I was ever impacted by the criminal justice system. So hello, Sonia, and welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast. Hi, Josh. It's great to be here. That is a pretty powerful resume, I have to say. Uh, it's, uh, you've come a long way since I, we first met. Uh, <laughs> so we got to know each other when you were an undergrad and very successful college debater at Harvard. How did you get from your undergrad all the way to The Hague? Um, well, uh, when I went to law school, um, I... Um, actually um, got really into international human rights work um, and especially international criminal law um, and uh, ended up um, and uh, did some war crimes investigation work and um, and then 
um, you know, just ended up hearing of a, a job opening at these um, war crimes tribunals in The Hague um, and uh, went there and it was a really great experience. But eventually I came back here and I realized that um, there are many really important human rights issues um, in the United States as well. Um, and those have been my, my primary focus um, for my, my academic career. So before yeah, we jump, particularly oh, in the criminal justice system, that is. Yeah. So before we jump into that, though, can is there anything you could share about working on the the tribunals for Rwanda and Yugoslavia as a former uh, international relations person? That that per- piqued my interest a little bit. Sure. Um, well, it was it was it was a great experience. Um, the those tribunals are now um, they're now closed because they were. Um, uh, meant to be temporary tribunals that were um, responding to atrocities that took place in the 1990s. They ended up being a little less temporary than planned. Um, the proceedings stretched out for, for a very long time. Um, and so uh, when I left The Hague in 2006, I thought they were going to be closing in a few years. In fact, took till till last year. Um, but um, but uh, you know they um, are in many ways similar. Um, in like in some ways similar to um, to U.S. Um, criminal courts. Um, they have a lot of similar procedural issues. Similar um, similarly, they are kind of regular criminal courts dealing with um, with uh, defendants um, charged with. Um, uh, you know, they, where, where the prosecution has to prove the elements of crimes, et cetera. Um, the difference is that um, they, uh, you know, rather than the, the defendants being, you know, the little guy up against the state, often the, the defendants were representatives of their respective governments and were, were people in power um, and um, were basically being charged for um, for uh, abuses of that um, of that power. Um, of course, there were there were lots of different defendants who played who played different roles um, in different kinds of um, of atrocities. But um, but yeah, it was um, you know my role. I wasn't out there in the field investigating cases. I was um, a lawyer working um, working with judges on. On, on trying to resolve the legal issues in the case uh, in the cases and it was exciting because it was a very new area um, of law um, there haven't been very many historical examples of um, trying to use criminal justice as a way for holding um, people accountable for mass atrocities um, and so it was uh, you know a, a really um, eye-opening informative experience to to be part of of one of those limited efforts. Uh, I probably uh, people would probably be mad at me if I didn't also ask what it was like to clerk for Merrick Garland. Uh, well, he's wonderful. I mean, that was um, that was really that was my first job out of law school and um, a, a truly truly formative experience in my my professional career. Um, he is uh, a prince of a guy. He would have been a great Supreme Court justice, and you know we can all we can all be sad that he isn't. Um, but he um, is. Uh, you know, making the most of his uh, leadership of the of the of the DC Circuit. Um, it was just a pleasure to learn from somebody who was such a such a brilliant lawyer. Really, um, at the time when I was just a, a baby lawyer. So we're mostly here to talk about your recent paper with JJ Prescott about broadened expungement, but you have also done some other research that I wanted to at least introduce. You did some important research on ban the box legislation. Uh, what did you discover? Well, unfortunately. 
Emily, the findings that um, we discovered on, on, on Band the Box, uh, this was work that I did with, with my co-author, Amanda Agin, who's now an economics professor at Rutgers University. Um, and um, what we did was we, we carried out a very big um, uh, experiment, one of these fake job application experiments, where we, we sent 15,000 fictitious job applications to businesses in New York City and New Jersey um, before and after they adopted ban the box legislation. Um, and we randomly varied race as well as whether people had a criminal record. Um, and otherwise, uh, the differences in the applications were, were only superficial. Essentially, people had identical um, qualifications. Um, and um, I guess in to some extent, um, our findings were supportive of the premise underlying Ban the Box in that we um, showed that, in fact, when employers had the box, when they had access to criminal record information, they were much less likely to call people back who had criminal records. Um, uh, and Ban the Box did cause employers, in fact, to remove the box. Um, so in that sense, it opened doors for people with records. Um, the bad news in our findings um, was that uh, employers... While, while it seemed to open doors for people with um, with criminal records, um, it seemed to close other doors um, in that um, em employers started to racially discriminate um, it, uh, at much higher rates. So before Ban the Box, in the companies that were affected by Ban the Box, that is, they had uh, a criminal records question before the law and then they removed it afterwards. Um, so at those companies before Ban the Box, um, white applicants got 7% more callbacks. And after Ban the Box, they got 43% more callbacks um, than, than Black applicants. So remember, these are um, identical Black applicants. So I, we can pretty confidently say that the reason that they were getting um, more callbacks was um, was because of race. But that, that effect was was way bigger after Ban the Box. And the, I think the, the our theory for why that's true is that employers essentially, if, if you don't provide them with criminal record information, um, there's a risk that they will use stereotypes, racial stereotypes as proxies for who they think has a criminal record. Um, and so um, there is lots of research on implicit biases um, that uh, that suggests that um, that it's there are widely held mental connections that people make between um, race and criminal records and that those are actually wildly exaggerated relative to the actual difference in the, in the rate at which um, people of different racial groups have criminal records. But, but so it's, it seems like employers were, were relying on these very exaggerated stereotypes and, and in many cases just refusing to call black candidates back. So it seemed like white people, white applicants with records were the primary beneficiaries um, of Ban the Box, while Black applicants without um, records paid paid the price. And I don't, it's been a while since I've read that paper, but does it, did you, uh, in subsequent years, have you thought about any other correctives that might be able to deal with that or? You know, I, um, so, uh, I, you know, obviously. Because the alternative the problem, is obviously not good either, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, I think that people have asked, well, what do you think about Ban the Box now? And I, I think it's it's really important, as, as my expungement work makes clear, to try to find ways to open doors to people with um, with records. And so I, I hesitate to say that it's just a bad policy, because obviously what's going wrong is employer racial discrimination, which is itself illegal. But, but just wishing that employers wouldn't racially discriminate um, is also 
uh, easier said than done. Um, we've had <laughs> laws against it for uh, decades, and yet those laws have proven difficult to enforce. Um, there's some simple things that I think could make um, uh it harder for employers to do the thing that we we observe them doing. Like for example, here we're talking about people about um, like the applications that we sent. They were in online job applications, um, so it's like uh, decisions being made not on the basis yet anyway of an in person interview. Um, so the first screen of these applications is based on just looking uh, at the information submitted um, online. Well, if the box can be removed from that, then criminal record like that is if the criminal record information can be removed, then we don't see why any racially identifying information couldn't also be removed um, at, at that stage. And, and I think that the most important racially identifying information is the, the, um, is the name of the applicant um, and also probably their home address. Um, so in, in our experiment, we, we used the name as the signifier of race because employers don't usually actually ask about race, but, but uh, at least half of Americans have racially distinctive um, names. So, so we think it would be helpful to, or at least I think, I'll speak for myself, um, that it would be helpful to um, to use a ban the box like strategy to get at racial discrimination um, uh, directly, but that that hasn't. Nobody has done that and done a, done an empirical test of that. So that's something I would I would love to to study in the in the future. Um, and then otherwise, you know, I I uh, I think. Um, in some ways, like maybe employers' incentives have to be changed um, so that they aren't as afraid of hiring people with criminal records in the first place. Um, and um, uh, whether that's like a public education campaign um, or uh, efforts to, you know, in some cases, employers may be afraid of negligent hiring lawsuits if um, the laws were changed to be more favorable to employers um, uh, who hire people with records. Um, to protect them from those kinds of lawsuits, um, that might be helpful. Um, I don't know. There's 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 a lot of possibilities, um, but you know, I don't think there's there's not going to be like a magic bullet answer to this problem. I don't think because um, you know the the problem of underlying racial discrimination and the problem of of employer suspicion of people with records those are pretty deeply culturally ingrained problems, and so. Um, legal quick fixes may be, may be hard to find. So uh, we talked briefly when I ran into you in D.C. about your research around risk assessment tools. I usually say that the question should be if risk assessment is more or less biased than discretion alone, but you kind of had a different take on that. Did you want to kind of talk about that for a second? Well, I mean, so right. So my, my writing on risk assessment has been pretty critical. Um, in particular, what I've been critical of is um, risk assessment tools that incorporate factors that I think are, are basically improper bases for treating people differently in the criminal justice system. Um, so um, some risk assessment tools include a whole bunch of socioeconomic factors, for example. Um, so things like, do you are you are you unemployed if you are employed do you make only minimum wage like if have you had uh, unstable unemployment over the years? Um, have you had difficulty paying your bills? Have you had housing instability? Um, and then things about your family, like does anyone in your family have a criminal record? Even have you been a victim of a crime in the past? None of those things 
have anything to do with your criminal responsibility or, or anything specific about you that would make you um, uh, riskier. But statistically, of course, people who um, live in poverty um, are more likely to um, uh, probably to commit crimes because many crimes are, are, are mediated by um, uh, by poverty. And they're also probably more likely to be caught um, if or if they do commit crimes because they may live in more heavily policed neighborhoods. And so statistically, it's probably true that those things are predictors of crime, but that doesn't make it a legitimate basis for sentencing somebody for longer or denying bail, et cetera. Um, and so, um, yeah, so, so it's a common response to say, well, yes, but if we provide these instruments, um, at least they're scientific and they replace um, the unguided discretion of judges which is itself likely to be discriminatory. And um, I, I guess I have a couple responses to that. One is that it's not obvious that providing the instruments actually does displace the underlying discriminatory tendencies um, of judges to the extent that those tendencies exist, right? Um, it is possible that they it just compounds them because judges in almost all the contexts where risk assessment is being used um, still have discretion. They're just given risk assessment to inform the exercise of um, that discretion. And so if the um, risk assessment is biased in a direction that is essentially the same as the direction that their underlying biases are, it may just um, confirm them and cause them to go, if anything, further in that um, uh, in in that direction. Um, and then the other thing is that, like, I just don't think we should think of ourselves as locked into a forced choice between a existing system that's bad and another system that formally locks in um, consideration of of improper factors. Right, like normally we're used to thinking of discrimination against the poor and, and other forms of discrimination in the criminal justice system as being things that we, we want to stamp out, right? Like that, um, you know, we, we try to train um, judges to, uh, to avoid um, and other actors in the criminal justice system. Um, and even though it's difficult to stamp out, it, to me, it can't be the solution to just like lock it in place in an algorithm, especially because uh, then when you give the results to those judges, you're giving this stamp of scientific approval that comes from the state um, on those results and just, and, and just allowing the 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 judge to just say oh well you know science says this um, and so so I'm going to rely on it and not really questioning where it where it comes from um, and I also think that some of the factors in risk assessments it's not obvious to me that judges using their own unguided discretion actually do treat them as as aggravating factors um, so in sentencing in particular where judges um, take into account a wide variety of punishment concerns, right? So one reason you might punish is because you are afraid that the defendant might commit more crimes in the future. Another is because you just think they did something wrong and they deserve to be punished. Um, but judges who highly emphasize what did the person do wrong and what do they deserve often treat factors like socioeconomic disadvantage as mitigating factors, not aggravating factors, right? There are reasons why you might understand where a defendant was coming from if they turned to dealing drugs to support themselves, for example. Um, and, and so if they, they, you know, if they didn't have a if housing stability, for instance, or if they, they grew up in a, in a um, you know, family that, uh, that uh, was living in poverty, et cetera, those things um, might, uh, might help to 
um, if not completely excuse, at least to, to help to explain um, some of their choices. And so, and, and I think there are plenty of judges who do treat those sorts of things as, um, if anything, mitigating. Whereas the risk assessment instruments, because they're statistically correlated with crime, um, flip the sign on those things, right? They they ensure that that um, judges at least are being encouraged by the state to consider those those factors as, as aggravating factors that should increase the sentence instead. And now my take. I've rarely seen an article about Ban the Box or about risk assessment tools that did not highlight some of the excellent research that Sonia Starr has done. It was a pleasure to discuss her earlier research with her. But just to highlight next week, I also talked with her about her newest research, a very good paper that she wrote with her co-worker, Professor J.J. Prescott, about the benefits of broader and automatic expungement. Next week, I'll share that discussion about this groundbreaking research. I believe it could be some of the most important research that I've ever seen on this topic because it makes the case that broadening expungement and making it automatic actually reduces crime and reduces recidivism. In other words, making for broader set-asides and expungement laws reduces crime and recidivism. It's actually a crime-fighting tool. So, for those who aren't familiar with expungement, it is a legal process through which formerly incarcerated people clear their criminal records. In many states, the expungement process is is currently incredibly limited. In my own state of Michigan, the only people who qualify are people with no more than one felony or two and two misdemeanors. And that's not even totally correct because several felony categories are disqualified from expungement, which means that even if you only had one felony, but it was the wrong kind of felony, you'd be disqualified. Now, this might still sound good to you, but it kind of misunderstands the nature of charging documents. Uh, it, you know, it's incredibly rare, even in the area of, in the era of plea bargains, for someone to be charged with just one felony. A friend of mine tells the story of being at a recent expungement fair where over 200 people showed up and only seven of those people were eligible for expungement or what we call in Michigan a set-aside. So next week, Sonia and I will finish our conversation talking about this important new research, so I hope you will check it out. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com and make sure to check out our new t-shirts, sweatshirts, and hats. Uh, If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash onpiratesatellite, which is actually the name of my other blog. You can support us by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, and Robert Alvarez, who's been helping with the website. Uh, Also, remember that you can sign up for our newsletter, which comes out every week on Wednesday, by going to the website as well. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.